Hello and welcome to the Top Spot. I'm Tim Scott. I'm Peter Stockham. And Pete, you're fresh off the plane from the TF conference in Birmingham. Yes, I am. I'm pretty tired, but it was a good show. And you managed to catch up with a few different people while you were there? Yeah, while I was there, I tried to catch up with a few people. It was actually pretty hard to find people at such a large meeting, but um, but I managed to catch up with Simon Elliott, the chair of the committee, the organiser meeting, and Barry Logan, who's a, who gave a talk on um, Kratom and how it's really going crazy in the US at the moment. So today we're going to bring you a couple of those interviews that Pete did while he was at TF, similar to the On the Spot we did at Factor a few episodes ago. Yeah, and in addition to that, I also visited the University of Copenhagen for a meeting with Peter Dalsgaard, who runs the Hi-Res NPS database, and has also got some very interesting automation in the laboratory, so I wanted to go and see them. And I had a chat to him about um, Hi-Res NPS, which you will hear mentioned in Barry's interview. Hope you enjoy the interviews. Okay, I've just pulled aside Simon Elliott here at the penultimate day of the conference. How's it going, Simon? Yeah, pretty good, Peter. You're um, the chair of the organising committee and you've uh, been trying to have this conference here for four years, you were saying in the opening address. What's so important about Birmingham for you? Well, Birmingham is Britain's second largest city, really, um, after London. So there's a lot of opportunities for people to come to Birmingham. There's good transport links. But importantly, the, the venue here, the ICC, has been really good to allow people flow because we've had over 800 people uh, throughout this week. So it's been a, quite a mammoth task to organise everybody and herding cats, you know, the, the phrase. Uh, yeah, it's been difficult. And that's uh, one of the largest uh, turnouts for a TF meeting outside of the US. Was that what you were saying on the other night? That's right, yeah. The, the, the president informed me that would be the... the most well attended TF ever aside from the US meetings. So the scientific program has been pretty strong so far? Yeah so we've had lots of different sessions so what we've tried to do with the scientific program here is create a variety not just of talks but the different nations as well so people can give a view of what's happening in their country so we as an international organisation can see what's happening in Asia in the Middle East and also not just Europe and Australasia in the usual places. That's the whole thing about coming to these international conferences because you don't realise what's prescribed in other countries like I didn't realise that morphine's prescribed as cough medicine in some places and, and Medazolam is prescribed as pills in the US, in the UK, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. well, it's, a, it's an eye-opener for all of us when you start hearing from someone in the country who, yeah, over-the-counter medicines that in your country is prescribed and controlled, is, is, yeah, it's an interesting one. And you've got a bit of a passion for TF, haven't you? You've probably come to most of the TF meetings during your career, is that, would that be correct? Yeah, I think that's, that's right. I was trying to think about which ones I've not been to, and that's only a couple. Uh, but yeah, I've been coming to TF since 2000, been a member for over 20 years now. And yeah, it's a family. You know it, you've, you've been here and been involved before, Peter, and all the listeners as well. TF is a family and it's a, it's a network, it's a connection. It allows us to talk to each other about toxicology. And that's what your podcast does, which is great. Thank you very much. We're really enjoying it, actually. Uh, I've got to say thank you very much for allowing the ToxPod to come to the meeting and allowing us to do a live recording on Friday. It's going to be very exciting. But uh, as you were saying, TF's got a, a real friendly atmosphere and you can approach anyone from the president, uh, any of the, the previous presidents, and they'll just have a chat to you and ask you what you're doing and be interested. That's what I like about it. Absolutely. And also for the youngsters as well, because we're obviously trying to encourage the next generation of toxicologists, you know, because we've been around a little bit. But it's good that we can talk to the youngsters they can talk to us and we, we can mix together you know there's no divides that's the most important thing is that everyone is, is connected together in our big network and family of TAFT. okay Simon thank you very much for those words and uh, we'll see you for the rest of the meeting I think we have to go to a talk I think we do have to go to a talk okay thanks thank Peter
Dr. Barry Logan, thanks for joining the TalkSpot. You're welcome. Good morning. Um, Barry, yesterday you gave a quite an interesting talk on mitragynine or kratom. Um, can you give us a bit of background about this drug? Uh, sure. So, uh, kratom is a plant that grows in Southeast Asia, uh, in uh, Malaysia, the Philippines, and Thailand. Uh, it's been around for a long time. It's been a folk medicine there. Traditionally, it was used as uh, a, a mild stimulant drug. The leaves are chewed. Uh, more recently, um, people have discovered that if you use it in much higher doses, then contrary to the stimulant effect that it was historically associated with, you can get more of an opioid-like effect. And as word about that has gotten out, in the United States certainly, it's become uh, a popular recreational drug. And it's also used by people who are trying to manage their opioid use um, to supplement maybe what prescription opioids are getting from their physicians. Uh, or in some cases, they're using it to try to manage their withdrawal. So certainly there's been a lot of publications recently. You notice there's probably almost doubled the publications this year as there was last year, just looking on PubMed. And even just the last few days, there's been a paper out from the UK on it, but it definitely does seem to be the US as the focus of um, the re-emergence of the tragedy. Yeah, that's been our experience. As I said, traditionally it was a folk medicine in, in uh, kind of the Pacific and in Asia, but uh, its use now has certainly been commercialised in the United States. Uh, specifically, it's completely unregulated currently. About two years ago, the Drug Enforcement Administration made an attempt to uh, place it on the schedule. In fact, a Schedule 1, which is our highest schedule, uh, no medical use and potential for uh, abuse. But due to some political pressure, it was taken off, or the, the notice was withdrawn, and the DEA is still trying to collect uh, data that will help us evaluate what its true harms might be. So they're still doing a bit of a consultation type thing, or is it more a, a, more a reassessment of the hard data? Well, I think what the DEA is very interested in are the publications that are coming out. As the growth and in interest and in use of this uh, drug has increased, uh, there are more adverse event reports. There are now more uh, reports of fatalities associated with its use. Um, we also see it in uh, impaired driving cases from time to time. And so it's um, active on the, on the opioid receptors. So would people be using that as an alternative to their opioids, or are they using it to come off opioids or is it just a general recreation? So I think part of its attraction is that it's an unregulated, uh, uncontrolled psychoactive substance. It does produce, as I said, at lower doses, a more of a stimulant kind of buzz, at higher doses more of an opioid uh, effect. Uh, and then a very high doses causes uh, significant sedation. Yeah, so, so I think people are, people are always on the lookout for some mind-altering experience and this is one that appears to be unregulated or, or, or in that legal grey area. Yeah, it's quite, quite interesting isn't it? Yeah. It does yeah. have these effects and it's still completely legal. And yeah. You showed um, diagrams, uh, pictures of some packaging yesterday and they look just like a synthetic cannabinoid so that's an right. example of someone pretending that this is a natural substance, a, a leafy substance but now it's and putting a nice packaging and now we're having a natural thing being put in the same sort of packaging but it is a natural thing. It's sort of Gone around right. So, yeah, in a lot of the head shops and um, drug paraphernalia shops, smoke shops, you walk in there and they have a whole wall of displays of uh, different uh, kratom products that are packaged. The packaging looks very much like synthetic cannabinoids. Colorful characters, uh, um, mylar kind of packaging. 
with different flavors or names uh, for the for the material. It's hard to know really though what's in any of those yeah, packages. Of course, as with every, all of these things, and it's uh, often the crushed, very finely from the diagram, we've got very finely crushed powder into capsules. Is generally what it's sold as. It is. It's the leaves that are finely ground. Some of the products are advertised as 20x, 30x, whatever that means, so some kind of concentrate perhaps of the leaves, which may have a lot more drug in them. There have also been, not so much currently, but uh, when the drug first appeared, um, there were a number of reports of it being doped or adulterated with uh, Otis methyltramadol. Uh, so there was a combined uh, effect, and some of the early deaths actually were attributed more to the, uh, the tramadol than to the metragenine itself. That's interesting. I wonder what the pharmacological reason for that would be. Um, yeah, somebody I think gave it a lot of thought because tramadol at, has actually some similar properties at lower dose. It does produce uh, a mild stimulant effect, uh, but you have to get to the um, uh, therapeutic threshold for pain control, and then it looks more like an opioid. So analytically, it's a bit of a problem, quite a complex molecule. Yeah, so in the plant there are over 20 related alkaloids, uh, metragenine being the most prevalent or most abundant, um, and uh, the rest are structurally related to that. Metragenine itself has three chiral centers, so you can have a total of eight different conformers of the molecule. Uh, there are four that are uh, the predominant ones, uh, two pairs of stereoiso- or di- uh, diastereomers, and because they are, they only differ in their conformation around uh, where the, the substituents are above or below the plane of the ring on the piperidine portion of the molecule, um, when you put them into a mass spectrometer, they're going to fragment exactly the same way, so you'll get the same uh, daughter ions and you get the same ion ratios. So this is one of these examples where if you're doing MSMS um, or even uh, high resolution mass spec, you're not going to be able to differentiate these based on their uh, on their fragmentation. You really have to come back to uh, making sure you have good uh, chromatography. So you showed a diagram of, you had at least four peaks quite well separated, but another diagram, if they were all overlapping, then you'd never actually get an accurate concentration unless you had a really good high-resolution method, you wouldn't be able to separate them. So. That's right, that's right. So when we first brought this test up, uh, we bought a, a standard reference material for one of the unique stereoisomers from uh, from one of the suppliers, and we developed our method, uh, went through our optimization and then our, our uh, uh, method validation. And when we got into method validation, one of the things we do is test authentic samples as part of that. and. With the first iteration of the method, we not only saw uh, a couple other peaks there that had the same transitions and the same ion ratios, but we found that there was another substance with the same uh, properties that was eluding under the or just on the the shoulder of the the standard reference material. So that clued us into the fact that we were going to have to do some more chromatography uh, to separate uh, this out. And in talking to some other people who have methods and looking at some of the published methods, a lot of people, um, when they see that, they'll just push the peaks in together because uh, they are they look to be uh, the same. Right. The, the difficulty with that is you've got a number of species now under that peak that ha- are going to have different pharmacological effect. So if you're quantifying it and it's a mixture of diastereomers with different levels of potency, and everybody's testing it differently, you're not going to get good, uh, consistent reference data. So has there been any work on whether any of these diastereomers are active anyway? Or is, might it be better to combine them all in one peak or sum all those peaks together? 
Well, so the, the metragenine uh, of the diastereomeric meric pairs is the most potent. Right. Uh, there's a, a second one called uh, speciogenine, uh, for which there's now a standard reference material available, which has less potency. The other two, there's really been no assessment of what their potency is. Uh, there's another active substance in the plant, which is 7-hydroxymetragenine, uh, which is more potent, maybe ten, as much as 10 times as potent as metragenine, but is present only at a fraction of its abundance in the plant, probably okay. 1 or 2 percent. So the focus has really been on this one uh, diastereum or metragenine. And the 7-hydroxy is not a metabolite, I was sort of under the impression a while ago that was, but... It... Well, there's, there's emerging evidence in, the, in addition to being a natural product in the plant that it is in fact also a metabolite. Now, um, what about dependency? Um, people are getting dependent on this drug as well as... It's obviously got opioid effects, so it's probably going to have the same sort of issues in that regard. Yeah, I think the emerging evidence is that in um, significant overuse or mega-dosing of the drug because of its opioid-like effects, it does produce reinforcement and habituation. And there are people who are seeking treatment for uh, habituation or having developed uh, some dependency on it. In our experience, it's most frequently used alongside other drugs, particularly opioids and uh, frequently benzodiazepines. So I think it's hard oftentimes to disentangle uh, how much of the adverse effect is due to the drug itself, the other drugs it's being taken along with, or the incremental or perhaps um, uh, enhanced effect that you get from taking the drug in combination. Well, I've had a couple of conversations here, and whether it's anecdotal or whether there's true evidence, but is, it, is polypharmacy on the rise? Everyone just seemed to be having... You never ever have just the one drug that's always uh, opioid with benzos, with GHB, with everything else. Is that, do you think that's increasing? Yeah, that's very much our experience across the board. So if people are, are taking metragenine as an adjunct to their therapy, if it's for pain management, or they're self-medicating to withdraw or to manage their illicit opioid use, uh, you're obviously going to get it in combination. But just across the board, we, the patterns we're seeing now in our uh, regular legacy uh, recreational drugs, we see combinations of fentanyl and cocaine, heroin cocaine. Uh, we've also had a number of episodes now of combined opioid and synthetic mm -hmm. cannabinoid uh, products, so powders uh, that are being sold ostensibly as, as fentanyl or as an opioid, but that contain uh, a mixture of the opioid plus synthetic cannabinoids. So that sounds like the, a particular dealer trying to make his product more attractive. Is that what it is? Or uh, do they know what they're doing? Yeah, it, it, it's hard to tell just how deliberate that is, or somebody's just trying to differentiate their product on the market, but it produces a, a very different kind of uh, high. Uh, in one of the incidents we investigated there were about 200 intoxications in an area of Philadelphia over one weekend, um, which was very high. Uh, and what was unusual about them was when they, these uh, patients went to the hospital, they were, they were obtunded, they were sedated, they were given Narcan. And typically when somebody's reversed with Narcan, they'll come out of it, they'll, within a short period of time, return to apparent normalcy. But these folks, when they got the Narcan, emerged into a very agitated, delirious uh, state. Mm that was initially diagnosed by some of the physicians as um, an anticholinergic kind of reaction. But uh, we obtained some of the powder and then obtained some of the clinical specimens and were able to verify that it was a combination of uh, fentanyl, heroin, and uh, 5 fluor adb okay. uh, So giving the Narcan to these patients basically unmasked all the synthetic cannabinoid right. effects. Now, I'm probably the first in line when it comes to getting a new source of NPS data on the internet. Uh, you also head up 
the NPS Discovery Centre. Is that right? Do you want to tell yes. us a little bit about that and how you're getting involved in that? Sure. So a lot of this activity is done through our uh, non-profit organisation that uh, our founder created about, actually this is our 25th anniversary of the Frederick Readers Family Foundation. About 10 years ago, we created a programme within that called the Centre for Forensic Science Research and Education, where we really stepped up a lot of our research activities. We uh, moved into high-resolution mass spectrometry techniques uh, as a way to explore uh, new, new drugs, find out more about drugs and their metabolism. Uh, and over the years, we uh, created a number of different workflows for the identification of novel psychoactive substances. Some of that is in forensic casework. A lot of it is post-mortem uh, through our partnership with NMS Labs. Uh, we have access to discarded, de-identified blood samples uh, for testing. So are they um, blood samples or blood e extracts? So we started with blood samples uh, for a variety of projects, particularly during the time of the rise of the opioid or the fentanyl analog uh, crisis or, or epidemic. But what we uh, subsequently did was, well, we had, we had a number of ways of looking at that data. Uh, one was to get samples and test them for things that were outside of the scope of what uh, the routine uh, NMS test had been. Uh, as we became aware of novel opioid or fentanyl analogs, we would rescreen the samples for those. We eventually figured out that it was easier just to get the discarded extracts, uh, saved a lot of sample preparation time. And NMS tests probably two or three hundred of, the, of these cases a day. So we had a very large pool of, of samples to, uh, of extracts to retest. So that's been very productive in terms of our ability to, to rapidly update our scope of testing, to recognize things that look alike in terms of something that's already in the database but not exactly alike, and we'll, we'll trigger uh, a series of workflows to, to dig down into the identification of those. Yeah. Uh, we also took advantage of the fact that the NMS lab screening had been done by uh, LC Toff. Uh, so we've been archiving all of the and it's a non-targeted acquisition. So we've been archiving all of that data, and now we data mine that data when we find, uh, get confirmation of the identity of a new substance, we'll retrospectively go back and reprocess months worth of data to see if perhaps it had been present in cases uh, earlier that we just hadn't recognized. Yeah. When it comes to free information about NPS, uh, the illicit drug, drug seizure sort of industry, that, uh, the groups that do that sort of work, if they find a new drug, they send it to the Swig drug and put it in their GCMS mm -hmm. library. But as yet, there's no central repository for LCMS, high-resolution information. It would be good if we could get something going like that, but I think it's going to be difficult to get a standardised approach across different vendors. So it was really pleasing to see that you had started to introduce some high-res NPS, MSMS data into some of the later uh, entries into your database, so that's great. So we, in addition to the, the post-mortem uh, biological extracts, we also uh, have a couple of other projects that give us some insight to what the trends are in the, in the market. One is uh, NMS Labs also uh, performs seized drug testing and has about six laboratories around okay. the United States. So um, the, our center receives uh, samples from them if it's things that are outside the scope of their library. Uh, and then we have access to high-resolution platforms that we use for uh, identification. We also run uh, NMR. So that gives us the opportunity to identify things de novo, even if we don't have uh, a reference material on hand. 
and then we'll either work with the vendors to get them to expedite synthesis of that or in some cases we've commissioned those synthesis uh, ourselves. It sounds like a good approach, joining up with different arms of your, your business to yeah. sort of, and hopefully disseminate information where you can. Sure, and a, and a complementary uh, part, uh, aspect of that is we also have a partnership with the United States Customs and Border Protection Service and they're monitoring illicit drugs coming into the United States through International Express Mail. So they have some screening that they do on site at the ports of entry, but again, anything that is unidentified there uh, is forwarded to uh, our NPS discovery program for these enhanced identification techniques. So as soon as we get something, typically we'll be able to make an identification within two to three weeks. Uh, and then we put that information out through uh, an email list, we put it on our website, it's, we have secondary distribution through UNODC's website and EMCDDA uh, and at various internal early warning systems in the United States. So the goal really is to get the information about the identity of these substances out, including their analytical characteristics. You're right that there is no uh, repository or, or uh, comprehensive place to go for that high-res mass spec data. Um, that's one of the things that we've been asked to do with uh, these new identifications is to, to provide electronic um, searchable uh, spectra. Yeah. Uh, so in the next phase of the project, we'll be looking for places to host that data. There's a website called um, highresnps.com, sure. which I'm involved with a little <coughs> bit. And um, unlike uh, the GCMS data, which can be put into a certain format, that all vendors have managed to get their software to read, this is in Excel database form. So makes it sort of universal because most vendors can sort of import that data. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, we certainly looked at uh, high-res NPS as one of the uh, sources that we go to for help with identification of new substances. Oh, yeah, So we'd be happy to contribute Excellent. Uh, data. And you already have contributed quite a few spectra this week, the ones that weren't even on the database before, so that was much appreciated by the people Good. who run it. Okay, thank you very much, Barry. Oh, you're welcome. Appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm here at the University of Copenhagen speaking to Peter Dalsgaard about his database Hi-Res NPS. How are you going, Peter? Oh, good. How are you? So you started this project up quite a long time ago, and you've been working on it very hard ever since. Yes, this project actually started back at a TF conference uh, in Madeira back in 2013. And I was working here at the section of forensic chemistry, and I had the same problem as everybody else. I was trying to buy standards for with MPS to put in the screening library and I know that my colleagues from the Scandinavian countries they also used uh, higher resolution mass spectrometry and they were struggling to do the same so I asked them if we, we should just make a database together uh, with MPS where we could share information. That's a great idea because there's very little information out there in terms of the fragmentation information isn't there there's a lot of stuff about uh, which new drugs are coming out, maybe it's formula. And so this is um, not necessarily as highly validated as maybe a commercially available GCMS library or something like that, but nonetheless, for the purposes of uh, suspect screening, which is where, uh, maybe you can explain suspect screening for us. So suspect screening, in in my point of view, is that you you have a list of things that you would like to see. So you can have the, the names and the molecular formula, um, but at this point, you maybe don't have any fragment data, so you can just use that uh, with a high-resolution mass spectrometer and uh, and screen for compounds. Now, if you find something that you think is uh, 
MPS, then you, of course, you need to buy the standard and, and confirm the retention time and the fragmentation. But as a starting point, it's good to just use a suspect screening library, especially when there's so many new compounds coming out every week. That's right. Every week there's new ones. And this, of course, saves you buying standards. The only other way to do this would be to buy standards or get standards from another laboratory, and that can be very expensive. So this suspect screening is just a place to start. can narrow down the list of compounds that you buy to verify the detection. Yeah, that's correct. And it also seems that even if you are using different instrumentation, they tend to generate the same fragments. So it's quite straightforward. Why not make a database where you can share the exact mass of these fragments? And you demonstrated that recently in a paper you published this year, and which I also contributed to by analysing some samples for you. Um, so tell us a little bit about that paper. So we want this paper to be a proof of concept uh, about this. So we, we took the whole database, exported it into an Excel spreadsheet, and then generated libraries for the Agilent system, for the Bruker system, for the water system, and for the Thermos system. And then we spiked a sample with some MPS, and then we analyzed this sample with the different instrumentation and just to see if this library could be a universal library that worked with all manufacturers. And so you found that basically you could detect all those compounds, except there were a couple of exceptions. Uh, But in general, the fragment data was the same regardless of what instrument you used, which has always been a suspicion, but no one's really ever proven it, I guess. So it's a great proof of concept paper to start with. Yeah, it seemed to work. So we continue this work now. Um, we encourage people to add data f- into the, the database if they have uh, the exact mass of some fragments um, and they get some MPS, just add it to the database and you can share it with the rest of the world, basically. And so to contribute, they just have to get a username from you, is that correct? Yeah, they can just... Uh, go into the website, hirismps.com, and uh, from there they can request a, a login to the database. So the database has actually got uh, how, how many compounds? A couple of thousand? I think there are 2,000 entries in the database now, um, but there are duplicates in the database, so there are probably a little bit more but than 1,000 MPS there. But... Uh, the reason for their, their duplicates in the database is that we encourage people to post what they have on uh, of, uh, data from their MPS, and this makes the database kind of self-validating. If we could see that people get the same fragments, even if they recorded the data on uh, Bruker, Agilent, Waters, or SIAC system, it makes them more confident in the data. That's a great way to um, sort of self-validate the database. And so these are entered by they, the source of the data that, that people might enter. That may be from a seizure or it may be from an authentic standard or it may even be uh, some data that someone's found in a paper and entered it in there. Is that correct? Yeah. We also monitor some websites uh, to see if there's any new uh, MPS out there. And if we find something, we just uh, enter the, the name, the molecular formula, the exact mass and uh, some structure information as well. So that's a big job. You're doing largely most of this yourself, I think, and with a little bit of help here and there. Uh, people who want to help, how do they um, get in touch with you? Well, they can first they can sign up to be a member of the database, and if they would like to contribute, maybe, maybe they can add their own uh, parts of their own library to Hyrus MPS, or they can monitor some, some website if they would like to. 
or they could maybe add the data from some scientific publication. Okay, Peter, thanks very much for joining us. I hope we can get some more contributors to your database. Thank you very much. A well worthwhile project. And if you're interested in Peter's paper, it's uh, in the Journal of Analytical Toxicology, highresnps.com, an online crowdsourced HRMS database for suspect and non-targeted screening of NPS. And that's published um, in May this year. Okay, I hope you enjoyed those interviews. It's always good to catch up with what different toxicologists are doing around the world. Sure, there are lots of very um, interesting talks, lots of interesting people I could have had a chat to, but didn't really have that much opportunity. But hopefully we can do more of this sort of thing in the future, Tim. Sounds great. Well, thanks for listening. And if you want to contact us, remember you can email us at thetoxpod at sa.gov.au. See you next time. Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.